I just lost track of what I was saying because a bird flew by. I'm sorry. That's dumb. Welcome back to Check This Please, the podcast where we're reading through the webcomic Check Please, and we've read through one quarter of it, so only 75% to go, fools. Today, we'll be looking at 2.1, Moved In, which, when it was posted on October 8th, 2014, began Biddy's sophomore year at college. Great! I'm Secret. Who's with me today? Hello, I'm Tomato on a computer that works. That's so great for you, you know? It really is. It's pretty life-changing. Anyway, tell me what happens in this strip. All right, well, here's what happens in this strip. Biddy, Eric Biddle, for those of you who don't remember, has just moved back into the house. It is the beginning of his sophomore year at college, and over visuals of... A pie he's left cooling on the windowsill and a bulletin board that he has charted up. We see that he is singing the song Halo from the album I Am Sasha Fierce by Beyonce. We see that the residents of the house have noticed that he's made some changes. For example, he's put the beer in the basement and the fridge is now full of Tupperware and butter. And he's also gotten rid of the doormat. And his singing has woken up Jack Zimmerman, who barges into the bathroom while Biddy is in the shower. And he pulls back the curtain and they start having a little pissy bitch fight to which shitty Ransom and Holster react kind of nonplussed and decide to do nothing. And isn't that really their arcs in Check, Please? Just basically deciding to do nothing. I mean, I don't know if they decide to do nothing or they're not given the option to do anything. You make a good point. Anyway, let's talk about this shower situation. <sighs> well, there's a lot here. This first comic of year two does not have a vlog associated with it, so we don't have any recap from Biddy about how living in the house is going great or whatever. It just starts with song filtering over ambient shots of daily life. Should we mention the haircuts or hold it? I think we can begin to think about the haircut and then maybe we can talk more about it next time. Yeah, I mean, I don't know how much there is to say about it. We did talk a lot about hair and the idea of the chop, but one of the first things that you'll notice about Biddy in this strip is that he has shorter hair and in the notes to this comic Ngozi calls it a gay ass haircut. My question about it which we can explore further in the next comic is is it a gay ass haircut and uh, we can discuss that next time. Oh interesting because that was also my question about it and what I was going to say was if you look at Holster in this strip they have the same haircut so Holster's gay hashtag confirmed we did it. <laughs> Yes. You guys can't see all of the balloons coming down from the balloon net I've had above my kitchen table this whole time for our hashtag confirmed holster LGBT spectrum representation. We'll talk about it more later, but all right. So something to note. And we put that at the top because we've dispatched with it. Goodbye. 
Item number two. For some reason on the, on the outline I wrote, Halo Halo, my favorite Southeast Asian dessert. Yep, year two, just loosening up on this old podcast. Yeah, Biddy is singing the words to Halo. We talked about Halo a little bit before when Biddy and Jack were having their conversation at the loading dock in uh, Samwell versus Yale number one back in the first semester of the comic. This sort of thematic thing that carries through the first two years of the comic is that Jack and Biddy are mutually breaking down each other's barriers and at the point when they are both entirely dismantled, that's when they are able to come together and have a romantic relationship. What's interesting about the use of Halo here is that when it was posted online, it was basically just quoting the song verbatim, but in the print versions for copyright reasons, the words have been changed and not for the better necessarily. And also the attribution that comes at the end of the comic where it says, you know, Halo, Beyonce Knowles featuring Eric Biddle, that's been taken out of the comic as well. I don't know that I have that much to say about this. I just think it's an interesting thing to note if you have the Kickstarter volume on hand or perhaps if you have the, I don't know, first, second hashtag hockey volume, maybe it's in there as well. I mean, we've talked a little bit when we've talked about changes for copyright purposes about the idea of fair use. And I mean, I feel like this is obviously a transformative use of those song lyrics. The music is not actually playing. So there's no way that sales of the comic Check Please could like cut into Beyonce's royalties or anything like that. But people, especially smaller scale creators, tend to be overly cautious about trying to avoid copyright infringement claims. Places like, for example, major sports leagues tend to send a lot of cease and desists to people who are using their logo if they think it's a threat because they know that they're the bigger party with the better lawyers and they can probably just nip it in the bud immediately. So I don't know. She probably could have just left the lyrics, I'm sure. I don't think this is that interesting, but it happens. Um, Way, way, way at the end of year two in one of the blog posts, actually it's the blog post where Halo reappears um, for the last two comics after Jack and Biddy Kiss. And Gozi writes a little note where she says, heads up, I'm going to have to blatantly change the lyrics when year two goes to print. I don't need to change the lyrics in Goodbye for the Summer, but in the printed book in Moved In, Biddy will sing a song called Shiny Light by Bechwise. And then the lyrics she writes out are, wherever I look around, I'm standing in your embrace. Well, that's a shiny light. Oops, you're really great. Which I think is a little funny and tongue in cheek and much more effective than the uncanny valley halo lyrics that she slotted into the year two Kickstarter book that I have access to. Why did I babble about this for so long? I don't know. Fuck me. It's year two of this goddamn comic. Well, I think that this actually does show something interesting, which I didn't think about until you said this out loud. The Batoise lyrics are sort of a little wink at the audience, you know, as as Ngozi has been doing 
with John Johnson and the ghosts and so on and so forth. And it is genuinely like a funny and fun little reaching out to the audience. The Uncanny Valley lyrics are beginning to take themselves too seriously in a way that will become a problem, I think, in, in later years. So I don't know if this is exactly emblematic of that particular issue in the comic, but I think that this is something that happens as the comic goes on, is that the winking quality of it begins to fade away in favor of self-righteous seriousness, maybe, or something like that. So I think we can maybe see this as a version of that. Well, I can understand why in like a blog post, she would want to wink at the audience or be a little bit like self-parodying. But this is supposed to be like a foundational emotional beat for these two characters. So I think what she is trying to do charitably when she changes these lyrics and she tries to make them as close to the original halo lyrics as possible is that she's trying to preserve the affect that this particular song is supposed to be conveying unfortunately this is a pretty banal sentiment it's not that deep So the thing that makes this song really worth listening to is Beyonce's voice, which is not here. Here's my question. Is Eric Biddle a good singer? That's what I want to know. How bad is this? So I actually think there is a post somewhere, like a blog post where somebody asks about their singing voices. And I think Biddy is like, not a bad singer, but not particularly good. But I didn't actually look up that extra for this. This song is in this comic and it's in the second to last comic. So it's become in a lot of ways a rallying cry or a theme song for Jack and Biddy. Something that bothers me about the song Halo, which is a really powerful sounding ballad that is certainly like satisfying to listen to if you're in the right mood. But the lyrics are like stilted and bizarre and kind of like bending over backwards to communicate what they're trying to say. You shook my defenses and reached into my soul is a pretty like commonplace romance narrative or romance trope. But the way the lyrics in Halo express it are, remember those walls I built well, baby, they're tumbling down. They didn't even put up a fight. They didn't even make a sound. So I don't know. It's, it's, it's like this bending over backwards to try to find like an alternate route into expressing a really over-processed affect or something. It's just interesting because we're supposed to really, really care about these two characters and really feel that they are soulmates. And this is not only a functional relationship, but a deeply stirring romance. And the first time I read the comic where the vast majority of year three and all of year four hadn't been produced yet, I was willing to believe that that was possibly true. But going back and rereading, I'm finding a little flimsy. And maybe as we read through 
my mind will be changed. Also, maybe the, you know, I don't know, I'll be able to sort of work on this comparison to Halo a little bit more. This is a love song that could function for so many different people in so many different situations. One of the reasons why it's a pop song is because it's relatively unspecific. Yeah, it and it's sentimental to its own detriment. It uses the gestures and images of sentimentality in a way that to me, when I listen to the song, because Beyonce is really good at expressing emotion while singing, it can be really affecting. But when I look at the lyrics alone without Beyonce's voice carrying them, the sentimentality becomes both insipid and overwhelming. So that's me and my personal, you know, taste in lyrics or whatever. Some people might find these really effective and, and that's why we all have different feelings about Check Please, I guess, isn't it? But I do think it's interesting that this song, which is not m my favorite song off of that album, I hadn't thought about this as being a foundational beat for the relationship, but I guess it is supposed to be. And I think it's really interesting that it's a song with relatively nothing lyrics that requires a certain amount of, I'll call it like benign manipulation by the music to work is, is the foundational note in this relationship. I find that really interesting and bad, <laughs> but whatever. The one thing I will say is that I think it sort of mutually works for Jack and Biddy as we go over this year. Biddy has to actively get through the Jack, but then Jack also has to get through to Biddy. Whether or not that's good or whether or not it's effectively conveyed is a discussion that we can string out for the next 18 comics, but... It is broadly applicable. That said, all kinds of songs are probably applicable to Jack and Biddy because their relationship is not that deep and not that specific. Oh boy, all right. Well, we've already crapped all over this whole comic, so... Um, Let's talk about this bulletin board. Yeah, cool. So I think that this one bulletin board in, I think it's the second panel is a better and more interesting detail than anything that was drawn in year one. Here we go. Here we fucking go. So I'm currently playing The Witcher 3. Why am I doing that? Well, because I've lost my fucking mind. And I've also played another RPG called South Park, The Stick of Truth. Great game. Look it up. And based on these two experiences playing video games, what I think is interesting about this bulletin board is that it really reminds me of the way that information is conveyed in RPGs, where a character walks up to a notice board such as this, and you click a button, and then you get a full-on view of the board, and it gives you all sorts of contextual information about what's happening, none of which is actually important to the actual plot, but all of which is interesting world building. Yeah, and I like this particular board for a couple of reasons. If you look at it, you'll see that there's a lot of condoms on it, which I think is funny and appropriate. You've got the 50 most beautiful, the swallow, which is like a fun little joke about Jack Zimmerman's beautiful face. Very good, very good. There's a chore wheel, which is turned in such a way, definitely not drawn this way on purpose, but it's turned in such a way that Biddy doesn't have any chores, which I think is very funny, especially because Biddy is clearly based on contextual evidence, even in this strip, the most likely to like rearrange and clean the house anyway. But what I'm really interested in are the lost and found materials, which are a sock, a key, an earring or something, 
And then several pairs of underwear, what appears to be a thong, a red pair of underwear, and then a pair of boxers, and then a bra. And so I'm just really curious about like, obviously the, the idea is that someone's been wheeling chicks and they left their underwear over, right? That seems to be the obvious suggestion. So I'm curious, like what, was there something that was also meant by the boxers that are hanging up there? Or was that just one of these guys lost their boxers? I don't know. This feels like when it was 2005 and I was combing through whatever I was into in 2005 looking for gay details. So this feels a little bit like that. I don't know if it really means anything, but I just wanted to talk about it, I guess. I think it's probably like one of their pairs of boxers. We have no evidence to suggest that Ransom Holster or Shitty would be having a guy over. We find out later that Biddy is a virgin, and everybody in the comic is shocked to learn that Jack is into guys. So I think if he was having dudes over who were, like, leaving their underwear, it would be uh, different. What I think is it's just the soft implication that they live in, like, a crazy frat house where a lot of kooky things were going on. There's a lot of fun PG-13 rated college antics that can result in somebody losing their underwear that is not, in fact, having sex. It's also just like, who would, like, come to this fucking house and literally just leave their underwear there? Like, I think the implication is that you are having a lot of parties and they're just, like, so fucking wild and such fucking ragers that people are so goddamn wasted that they're taking their underwear off and their bra off and losing earrings and then going out into the world completely missing their underwear and totally unaware of it. Yeah, that makes sense to me. I guess I wasn't asking it in quite a literal way only, but also just like, is this something? I I, I don't know. It's interesting to me, I think in part because it reminds me, looking at this board reminds me of being, I don't know, a teenager and 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 watching media and trying to figure out whether or not the creators were in on like the homoerotic undertones you know what i mean obviously ngozi is writing a gay comic so it's a very different situation but that's what this kind of reminded me of i mean there's way too many condoms on this board it just seems completely unrealistic that like that many condoms would be getting used and also that literally any of these people would want to come and go into the kitchen to like get a condom. Do you think Biddy put them there? I, uh, yeah, Biddy did this whole thing. The chore wheel makes no sense based on where the characters heads are and how the chore wheel is broken up. There is literally no way that all of them would ever be assigned any chores and two different things have nobody because there's nobody on the bottom of the wheel. So either this isn't being used yet or Biddy's just not that good at designing chore wheels. I don't know. I've never personally used one. Whatever. I'm sure he has this like in his kitchen as an adult too and everyone hates it. There is a little more detail about the swallow buried in one of the extras. So the picture of a woman who's right in the middle on that 50 most beautiful issue is Camilla Collins, the captain of the women's tennis team who generously bestowed her her name to my uh, Tumblr. It's the only time she ever actually appears in the comic at all. I forgot that. (laughs) And it's like, you wouldn't know that unless you had 
obsessively trolled all of the check please like extras posts and then retain that knowledge and then the guy standing next to her uh the the person to the viewers right that's john johnson yeah i I remember that i remember that john johnson was in this issue of this so this is this is from the previous year yeah i i think this is like a really lovely piece of world building and for once in her life ngozi does not over discuss it in the blog post i think she mentions it but she doesn't beat you over the head with it and you know what i like that nice job it very much looks to me like the kind of thing that you would click in on an rpg and the way in which you get a snapshot of what this world or what this space is supposed to be like without it actually making a huge amount of sense or having anything to do with the plot. I actually think that these first few panels are really effective in exactly that way. As you said, the sort of daily details, the pie pooling in the window, the, what is this called that we were just discussing this board? What is it called? The pin board? What is this called? Bulletin board? Thank you. Bulletin board? I just I think you can call it a pin board. I think probably different people call it different things the word i was looking for was definitely cork board you can maybe call it this whatever it is this board is great and then shitty kind of looking into the refrigerator and being like what i actually think that these three images are really really well done both artistically and in terms of the information that they convey visually without relying overly on extra information because the only thing that we're we're really hearing over that is Biddy singing Halo and Shitty's irritation. And so I think that this also kind of speaks to her more effective scene setting, which unfortunately she will abandon and return to the vlog at times. But I still think this is really nicely done. It's a good way to open the year. Curious to me that we didn't hear much about his concussion. I know that we'll hear a little bit more about it and then we just never talk about it again, but we can assume from the state of affairs that he's fine. So that's that's nice, I guess. So we get this information that he's basically like moved in and pretty much rearranged the entire house. He has moved the beer to the basement. He's gotten rid of the doormat or whatever. There is a little bit of back and forth. I've heard in Check Please critical circles where people feel like this is really awful like it was truly horrible of biddy to have moved into this home where four people were already living and basically made executive decisions to entirely change the way that they are living and rearrange things and move things that like this is truly horrible and like awful etiquette it's obviously not supposed to be read that way i mean uh, you know i don't know I'd be pretty annoyed. I mean, it is deeply annoying to have somebody who, like, just to be clear, none of the four people living in this house right now wanted Biddy to move in with them. I mean, I think it's obvious that they were all friends and they all get along, so they're cool with it, but one person took it upon himself to turn his room over to Biddy. So it's not like this is a situation that he was invited into to contribute this to the house. And in fact, we saw him babbling to Jack in 1.22 about how he was going to do some of this stuff without having discussed it with anybody else first. So it's like, yeah, he's, he's being pretty presumptuous about what it's okay to do. At the same time, it's also like, I don't know, who gives a shit? Like, all of these people have much bigger problems. It's slightly annoying that Shitty has to go to the basement to get a beer. Slightly. 
My take on this is that it is annoying. It is an interesting character detail. I don't think it's unforgivable, but I think it shows something about Biddy and how Biddy assumes roles and assumes that he can fulfill particular roles and that other people do not either want to fill that role themselves or maybe that they necessarily want the role filled. In this case, this is like house caretaker, right? He's, he's sort of like freshened the place up, you know? And I think that's a great character detail. I don't think it gets played out. I don't think we really get to explore this part of Biddy that well, but I think that it remains present throughout the rest of the comic. It's just that the text around it never kind of questions it. But I don't dislike it. I think it's a great character note. Would I personally want to live with Biddy? No! I don't want someone coming in and moving my fridge around. I don't want someone who like can't sing quietly in the shower. Like if they're going to sing, I have to hear it through the whole house. You know, I've been known to sing in the shower. My roommate's been known to sing in the shower, but you try to do it in a fairly polite way, not in the morning when you know someone's sleeping. That's bad behavior. So I think it's a really great character detail. And while I personally wouldn't want to live with Biddy because I would find these things irritating, I don't think it's unforgivable. You just have to have a conversation and be like, hey, Biddy, you need to please stop that. Now, Biddy might then, you know, forget to put sugar in your piece of pie. And then that's a whole other situation. I don't know how he avoids the sugar in exactly one piece of pie, but I feel like he would. Actually, I think a sugarless pie would still be pretty tasty. So never mind. This wasn't a very good vengeance plan that I hatched for him. Anyway, the point is he's fine. He's annoying. He's fine. I think it depends on the quality of the fruits. I think if you have a really nice, really tasty piece of fruit, then no, you probably don't need that much sugar. Although the sugar does sort of help with the gelling and the binding. You know what? Never mind. Moving on. Yeah, I I agree pretty much. It's annoying. And obviously in, you know, a real world situation, if you had a pushy, presumptuous roommate, Poonvin, and four of you had already been living there, sitting down and having a conversation about, sorry, you can't do this but here's the things we'll let you do, is like what rational adult people would do. I also don't think it's unforgivable level, you know, oh, Biddy sucks, he's a little awful dictator or whatever it is that people who really hate Biddy make of this moment. Yeah, I know, I know. I mean, here's the thing, Biddy sucks. Like, this is deeply obnoxious. It's like, you're 19 years old and you're moving into this fucking house where none of the people you live with necessarily agreed to this being the situation. Calm the fuck down. And I agree that this would be interesting if Biddy trying to figure out how to fit in continued to play out through the rest of the year or the rest of the comic. To me, the only place where this really comes to a head is the whiskey stuff that comes into year four, where whiskey rejects Biddy's sort of caretaking parental style managerial role, and Biddy is deeply hurt by it. So you can imagine some alternate version of Biddy moving into the house in year two, where these other guys reject his attempts to impose order on the house, and then he reacts really negatively. But we don't see that story, so okie doke. But yeah, I agree. It is like a really interesting, really telling detail about Biddy. And if we're making a little list of, you know, why we view Biddy's type as 
controlling or authoritative or domineering in some way. I mean, yeah, like this is the kind of thing that is informing the view I have of him as a character. He's somebody who comes into a situation and is like, all right, I'm here now. This is how it's going to be done. I'm getting rid of this. It's going downstairs. I'm putting this here. I'm making a shore wheel. This is how it's going to be. You're going to do what I tell you to do. And that's basically what we're seeing from him here. So keeping tabs on that. Right. And so textually, I mean, here's the thing, right? I think the thing that makes it possible to read this in two ways is that in real life, if someone moved into your house and was like, here's your chore wheel and you hadn't discussed it before, you would be like, well, I don't know what you would be like. I would be like, that's hilarious. No, I'm also not someone who gets off on a chore wheel. So Biddy and I don't have that in common. I guess what I'm trying to say is Biddy is readable as either this, let's call him a dominant personality, right? Or as a sort of little ray of sunshine reaching into everyone's lives and making them better from this position of caretaking, which we typically characterize as less powerful because it's gendered component. And so different kinds of power get ascribed to different kinds of behavior because of that gendered component, I think, or at least in relationship to that gendered component. Caretaking is obviously often gendered towards the feminine and therefore the way that power is enacted in that particular role is very different than the sort of more masculine power. Like, I'm not saying that this is how it should be. This is just typically how these things tend to be talked about. But what we see with Biddy is that if you look at him as a caretaker and you look at these sort of cutesy, twee, little changes that he's made and you read that as caretaking and you read that caretaking as inherently welcome because of who Biddy is, then he doesn't necessarily come across as a dominant kind of personality or a domineering kind of person. It's when you start questioning like who would not like this? What would you feel like if someone did this? How is this in fact maybe a little manipulative? And that's when you start to see that other aspect of Biddy's personality come out. But the text never responds to it, except for the whiskey thing that you mentioned. The last thing I'll say about this is that I don't think the text should have to point that out. I don't think the text should have to push at that distinction. I think it would be an interesting story if it did, but I'm coming at this more from the perspective now of like, how is this read both by me and by other people in the fandom and what kinds of conversations around it have I seen and how does this feed into how we talk about Biddy and write about Biddy when we're making fan works about him. We'll get to it, but this is obviously not the comic's responsibility. There are a lot of places in which I definitely feel like, oh, the comic should have pushed on this. Like, I think I made a pretty clear case at the end of year one that the comic should have pushed on Biddy actively choosing to stick with hockey, even though it has costs. Like, I think that's something the comic should have done, not only for its own ethical position, but also for, like, its plot. I think... We're at the beginning of year two. This story could have gone a lot of ways. It doesn't want to go down this road specifically. Fine. Maybe the one sort of cost to not pushing through on the dual ways of reading Biddy's character is that Biddy as a character certainly has flaws. So this argument about, well, what makes a balanced character? They have to have some shortcomings. Biddy obviously has shortcomings. 
it's just repeatedly reinforced to us that nobody notices or cares about the shortcomings. They don't matter. I don't think that the comic should necessarily have pushed on this tender point, right? I think it would make Biddy's flaws more interesting because there would be reactions to them. But yeah, I don't think it should have. What I think is interesting, though, is that in these two styles of reading, Check, Please, the style that I think we both adopt, and, and I'm not saying there's only two styles. These are just the major differences I've, I've seen. The style where you take what the comic wants you to take, and then the style where you say maybe, oh, well, I see what you want me to take, but I'm actually going to read more closely into certain details. I think that because Ngozi does not hand it on a telegraphed platter, if you lean more towards the first style of reading, you are less likely to read into Biddy that way. And then you are more likely to be like, why did you write this this way or something in the fandom? Do you know what I mean? Because disagreements about Biddy's character are a huge part of disagreements in the fandom. So I just kind of tracking why that might be the case, I guess. Because Ngozi, as we've discussed, is not especially subtle about what she wants you to read. So if she doesn't point it out, although she does actually point this out, there, there are multiple times where she calls Biddy passive aggressive and people don't always read him that way. So it's interesting to me. But in this particular case, she has not pointed out that in fact, moving all the beer to the basement, singing loudly, changing things without asking, these are all f maybe not purposefully, but they can all be read as passive aggressive moves. So it's, it's kind of interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think the question about is moving the beer to the basement passive aggressive, it really depends on like motivation. Yeah. Is he moving the beer to the basement because he's annoyed that the people he lives with are constantly drinking? and he's trying to make an aggressive comment on it without making a comment on it, thereby being passive aggressive? Or is it just that like, he's baking constantly every day, so he wants to have access to butter? Or yeah. he thinks to himself, well, obviously it makes sense to keep beer in the cellar because it's cool down there and you're probably drinking beer less often than you're eating food which is what you want to have access to in the kitchen. So if it's just like he's prioritizing his needs or his view of how your kitchen should be organized, he's being self-centered more so than passive-aggressive. But I agree that he's passive-aggressive because, yeah, he sends signals to people rather than outright stating things. Right, which is an interesting character point. There's a lot to work with there if you're thinking about him as a character, especially with the secrets he's keeping, right? The walls that haven't tumbled down yet, etc. We can move on. I guess I would say this could also be passive aggressive in the sense that he has decided in a self-centered way, as you said, that his way of arranging the kitchen and the beer and so on is better. And therefore there's like a bit of critique inherent in moving the beer, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, here's the thing. There's, there's no follow-up on this. Like there's no continued conflict over Biddy's presence in the house or how the fridge is arranged or where the beer is stored or what if somebody doesn't want to do these particular chores and they don't like that Biddy is telling them when to do what. None of that continues through the comic. And I think it's possible that, yeah, I mean, these are mostly just guys in their early 20s to mid 20s who are jocks who are both in college and on the hockey team. And they really don't have the energy or even the care 
to give a shit about this. They're just like, oh, okay, whatever. I, you know, I can use a Clorox wipe in the bathroom once a week. It's fine. I would say probably the most likely thing is that it's just like, Biddy is trying to exert some kind of control because it matters to him and he wants it to matter to other people. But it kind of doesn't matter to them. They're just like, eh, whatever. But which we see at the end of the strip. Yeah. I love this panel of Jack in bed clutching a pillow over his head for some reason. <laughs> I think it's a great panel. I I really like it as well. I love that he sleeps next to his computer (laughs) because I do too. No, I mean, I think it's like on his desk or whatever. I like that you can see the definition in his obliques while he's sleeping. I don't know that much about that. Like, shouldn't he not be tensed while he's in bed? Maybe, okay, two options, three options. One, he's just so fucking cut that no matter what he does, he's got the obliques evident. Like he's constantly dehydrated and you can just always see all of his muscles. That's option one. Option two, it's just a comic line drawing, obviously, right? It's not really like definition, definition. It's just how you can kind of see muscles under someone's skin. Option three, he's very tense all the time. I think option one and option three together are really ideal. That's what we got. I was literally going to say, oh, it's a combination of one and three. (laughs) So sitting on top of his computer, you can see his wallet has his Samwell ID in it. And somewhere in the blog, if you go back through it, dig around, there is um, like a blown up um, image of this. And you can see that his student ID photo, which would have been taken his freshman year of college, shows that he had long hair or like shaggy hair at the time, which is again, just kind of like a cute little detail about how he used to wear his hair shaggy and now he's wearing it dumb. And then he's got this little post-it note on his computer. That's basically a little to-do list of, of what he has to do. And let's see, at the top, he's written down hist 316, and then under it, it says Irish. So it looks like he's probably taking like an Irish history class. So where are all the fix about Jack taking Irish history? Jack's opinion on like IRA bombings or whatever. Under that, it says Biddle, and then it looks like there's a dash. So something about Biddy. And then under that, it says Cadu de Anis, which Tomato will tell us more about. And then under that, it says Bruins. I would like to propose that Jack reads a book in his Irish history class that I had to read for a class, which is called Irish Times, colon, Temporalities of Modernity. Oh man, that sounds bad. It actually made me cry. Made me think about my grandma. That really happened to me. I was like reading for class and then I was like, I'm crying. This is horrible. Anyway, Somebody write about Jack Zimmerman reading Irish Times colon Temporalities of Modernity and just sobbing. That sounds great. So then we see Biddle. What does he want to do with Biddle? It's uncertain. The options are off screen and therefore endless, but it may have to do with something below, which says cadeau d'anniversaire, which is short for cadeau d'anniversaire, which of course, as I'm sure everybody knows, means birthday present. So look out for that. What I'm really interested in is that he's going back and forth between, I guess, English and French. That's kind of interesting. I don't think it's uncommon. I sometimes do this and I'm not even a native French speaker, but I think that's like an interesting insight into how Jack navigates language, as many bilingual people do. Well, here's the thing. Bruins is Bruins, whatever language you're in. Biddle is Biddle. 
whatever language you're in. The abbreviation, the sort of like, you know, code for the history class, HIST 316, is just the abbreviation for the class. That's probably like what it's listed under in the course book or the registration website. And then the name of the class is probably Irish something. So my guess is that if even if you're bilingual, if the name of the class is Irish history, you're not going to translate the words Irish history into French. You're just going to write what the name of the class is. Oh, totally. What I find interesting about this is that my guess would be that Jack categorizes things in language. So he talks about family birthday presents or whatever in French, because of course, this is the language he uses to engage with his family, but he's in college in English. And therefore everything associated with that is in English. Like, I just think this is a nice detail because for me, it represents how my experience of speaking more than one language is, which is that I have certain domains of knowledge that I feel very comfortable discussing in various languages. And then other domains of knowledge, I do not feel comfortable discussing in various languages because of the things that I tend to talk about in those languages, you know? And I just think that's, nice detail. I had been trying to open the blog post because I wanted to look at something in there. Jack is a very organized person. He makes lists on post-it notes so he can remember his responsibilities. Glad we did that. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I feel like it's obvious that Jack is going to be meeting with the Bruins. Uh, In the last strip, he was talking about this in 1.22. It was mentioned that he was going to training camps or uh, actually not training camps, prospect camps, development camps. And then Biddy tweets over the summer that one of the development camps he's going to is in Boston. So if I recall correctly, at the end of this year, he also has an offer from Boston. And if you have huddle number one, there is a sketch of Jack kissing Biddy in a Bruins jersey. And I think... I think, don't quote me on this, that initially Jack was supposed to end up on the Bruins before it occurred to Ngozi that she couldn't use an actual NHL team for that purpose and therefore had to invent new ones. I seem to also remember this. So I'm going to briefly bring up the blog post now, which discusses this fact of Jack's going to Boston and or not going to Boston or whatever. And she adds under the bottom part of the blog post under stuff that there's a little bolded implied question questions about NHL and team name usage. And she then elaborates, hey guys, I have a question for you. So you know how Jack's gonna graduate in May and play in the NHL? I was wondering if anyone knew the rules on using NHL teams in fiction. That is, how could I mention specific teams without getting sued? I'm fairly certain that I can use the National Hockey League in name, but I'm getting super unsure about using actual team names. Also the seepage into RPF, which I'm going to try to avoid in clever ways. Anyway, if you have an idea, just shoot me a message. So crowdsourcing the solution, I had completely forgotten that she actively mentioned hockey RPF in any of the blog posts. So now I feel very, you know, vindicated about all of my conspiracy theories as I I love to feel vindicated. So that's great for me. Also very much just once again, using the blog post to confirm that check please is on a particular trajectory, much in the way that 
a fanfic might use like a series of tags or a book might use a particular kind of book cover that indicates a certain kind of genre. These blog posts act in a paratextual way to provide the rails along which Check Please will ride. I will say that's one thing I don't like about the way that tagging is now done on AO3 is that sometimes I don't want to know. I cannot process any list of tags that has more than maybe five. So as soon as it's over five, I just don't read them. I'm too old. I'm too used to like metadata being used as actual metadata on archiving sites. I just can't do it. Sometimes I don't want to know whether it's analingus and foreskin play or whatever. I don't know. Tell me what you're thinking. (laughs) Well, I do think it's really interesting because I, I do often see like very specific sex acts in tags and I find that fascinating. But anyway, that's that's for another time. I don't think Jack or Biddy has a foreskin. So yeah. we can't use that tag. Somebody out there convince us. Somebody out there get real into, I don't know, docking. Okay, look, is this going to end up in the podcast? Sometimes these things just come out of your mouth and you don't know what's going to happen. My belief about South Park is that Stan Marsh has a foreskin and I have written so much Stan Kyle docking. Just put it out there. I wrote a whole fucking fic, like one of my earliest South Park fics was basically about how Stan and Kyle only do docking, like it's their main (laughs) sex act. But um, yeah, so- Who has a foreskin in check, please? This is a conversation we need to have. Special episode, special episode material. Honestly, I'm not, I don't know, Dex? Here's the thing. Most assigned male at birth children in the U.S., are circumcised, like the vast majority thereof. Now, do I think this is correct? You turn, now we're a foreskin podcast. Here's the situation. I gotta know your opinion. (laughs) My foreskin opinions. My opinions are, it's probably not the worst thing in the world, but probably you also shouldn't do it because why bother? I don't have any opinions about this. You know what? Let's pack it away, put it in the box, seal up the box, light the box on fire. We're back in 2.1. Well, here's the thing is that Jack is finding out whether or whether or not Biddy has a foreskin, although Biddy definitely doesn't have a foreskin. It's like he already would have known because they've been showering together for a year at this point. And I, I refuse to believe that Jack Zimmerman has not, you know, for like hockey purposes, <laughs> just How- taken a peek. <laughs> How aerodynamic are you under your cup? I gotta know. Wait, okay, can you tell us about the framing of this shower scene, please? Because you made an observation that the world needs to know. Yeah, so I'm actually completely shocked that number one, I'm the person making this observation, and number two, that I have never seen anyone make this observation before. But the visual language in this scene where Biddy is singing in the shower and Jack is creeping up behind him is from the fucking movie Psycho. How did this occur to me? I'm not sure. I've never seen that movie. Oh, and the first time I saw it, I was shocked by how handsome Norman Bates was. So what I'm saying is that Jack and Norman Bates more in common than you'd think. Well, here's the thing. I looked up... The shower scene from Psycho, directed by Alfred Hitchcock. I don't know what year. It's in black and white. Let's just say 1954 and move on. 1960. Wow, that late and it was in black and white. I guess it works. You can't see his face. 
So I don't know if he was attractive or not. But for whatever reason, this never occurred to me before. It's not noted in this blog post or in the later post about process that Ngozi centers around this particular panel where she shows how it was created by building up through gifts. I've always thought it was creepy. Like the fact that Jack's eye sockets are obscured and it looks like he just has two weird glowing red gouges in his face where his eyes should be is inherently pretty creepy. So I don't know why, but when I was writing the outline, I wrote this fucking psycho shower sex scene. And then I was like, wait a minute. And I went to YouTube and I looked and no, like this, literally, this is exactly taken from that scene. Everything from Biddy's posture, the way that he's standing under the shower and facing the stream of the shower, Jack like approaching the shower, the way that Jack pulls the shower curtain back is all cribbed exactly from the film Psycho, which raises, I think, two points, one of which is more interesting than the other. So I'll start with the less interesting point. Did she consciously reference this? Or is this imagery just so embedded in collective unconscious that it's impossible to do a shower scene without borrowing this particular framing? Much the same way that having never even seen the movie, I somehow just made the connection that this is what's being referenced here. I think the more interesting question is, why? Because Jack is not, even though we, we literally have joked before about how Jack is a fucking creepy serial killer, he's not actually, or he's not supposed to be. And in fact, these characters, nine months from like this scene taking place, are going to be getting together and then they later get married, as you may or may not have heard about Checkley's. So it seems like a really fucking weird thing to reference right? It's bananas. It's buck fucking wild is what it is. Because obviously I'm deeply into the fact that Jack is replaying the steps of a man who dresses himself literally in the skin of his mother. That's the plot of Psycho, everybody. Which is to say that uh, Norman Bates does not dress in the skin of his mother. I mixed up various horror tropes. He does dress up in his mother's clothes, and he has a wig, and he looks a lot like his mother, and he keeps his mother's body, and it's very creepy, but he doesn't actually dress up in the skin of his mother. That is a gorier and grosser trope that came a little bit later in psychological horror. So my apologies, everybody, for all of the things I'm about to get wrong over the next several minutes. Backward scratch, over. Go back to your regularly scheduled podcasting. I don't understand how someone as visually literate as Ngozi would not do it on purpose unless it is through the collective subconscious of, well, anytime there's a shower scene in any horror movie or TV show that I've seen that wants to build tension, this is exactly what you do. You are in the shower with the vulnerable person and then a shadow or a shape shows up outside of the glass or the the shower curtain and then you know interrupts the whatever the person in the shower is doing that's cool but this isn't a horror (laughs) well isn't it a horror though actually if you look at it the right way yeah i was gonna say that too good point 
But I mean, I guess there's this, this certain visual language of, well, this is how you do a creepy shower scene. But the thing that makes it for me so indicative of Psycho is that Jack's obviously creepy silhouette is supposed to be creepy. There's no way that you draw this silhouette without being like, ah, a serial killer. Like, you just cannot. You would not do this to his face. You would make it much more vague if you just wanted him sneaking up in him not to look like a fucking serial killer. So it's clearly playing with those tropes, those visual tropes. You can see the fucking Adam's apple in his neck and the shadow of his bangs on his forehead. You can definitely see his fucking Jeepers Creepers eyes through the shower (laughs) curtain as well. Oh my God. Yeah. So it's just truly bananas. Here's what I'll say. I think that this is a somewhat purposeful visual reference to, if not Psycho, then to the genre of horror that has a moment of tension before an interruption. It's just, that's part of the punchline of the strip is that instead of instead of Jack pulling out a knife and murdering Biddy, he's telling him to stop singing. That's like the joke, which is a <laughs> weird joke. But um But the other thing I think that is really interesting that I don't think is purposeful is that if you think about Psycho, which as I mentioned is about someone with like very major mommy issues, for lack of a better term, we can kind of look at Jack in this moment and think about, well, what does Jack have? Oh, that's right, daddy issues. And so there's like this very probably almost certainly not deliberate parallel where Jack and his issues with his parents and wanting to be his parents, one might even say stepping into the role of his father in the way that one might also step into, say, your mom's skin suit, you know, whatever. There's a parallel being built here here where Jack's obsession with a parent for like makes him eventually move in kind of dysfunctional ways. Like for example, opening your friends slash teammates slash housemates shower curtain and then just staring at them while they're showering, telling them not to sing, which is a weird way to approach this. Here's the thing. I think that's really interesting. Having not seen Psycho, I'm actually very upset to learn about this skin suit situation. That's actually much more upsetting than what I had presumed Psycho was actually about. This makes no sense. It makes no sense. Like, it's not a good reference. It's bad for these two people in this particular comic. I guess it's possible that in the def- in defense of this decision, it seems like literally nobody has ever noticed before. Truly, truly, I have never seen anybody note this anywhere. If somebody else has, please feel free to point me in that direction and I will give that person credit, but I cannot call to mind any other observation of this. I have always thought that Jack looked fucking creepy. And I have definitely seen people critique Jack's decision to march into the bathroom and like open up the shower curtain and start like yelling at Biddy. I have seen some people make the point that like Dubcon or there's some like homophobic layer to it because Jack knows that Biddy is smaller and younger and gay. So there's like a predatory layer happening. I don't know that I would go that far. But again, if you're trying to set up a particular kind of relationship to these people, you know, I don't know, I guess like the walls that came tumbling down are possibly analogous in this sense to like the shower curtain, but I just don't think this fits. 
The other thing I would say about this particular moment is that you would think seeing this moment, and indeed the whole way that this particular strip is set up, that there will be forthcoming tension about Biddy fitting in with everybody else who lives in the house, and also specifically getting along with Jack. And after this particular jokey comic, this thread does not reappear at all. You could axe this entire comic strip from Check Please, and it would change nothing, take away nothing. It's like iconic, you know, I-Q-U-E in the pantheon of major Check Please moments. And obviously the book ending of Halo as a song is something that we've already beaten to death. But the events in this particular strip do not fit into the rest of the plot of the comic or even the sort of underlying conceptual issues in this year of the comic at all. Honestly, okay, I have two thoughts. My first thought is kind of a stir the pot thought. So sorry, everybody, but I'm gonna say it, which is I wonder if this were being made in 2020, how the fandom would react to this crossing of boundaries framed as romance. I think the Checklist fandom would probably be okay with it. I'm curious about other fandoms that have more active interest in critiquing power imbalances in all situations. Because I do think that, I, I don't think Jack is being predatory here, but I do think that like, probably not the best method to having a reasonable conversation with a roommate about something that frustrates you to just open the shower with them in it. And the only reason that we're cool with it is because we know they're gonna bone, right? Like the reason that it's fine is that we know they're gonna be in love. And this is a romantic trope, which allows an early intimate moment or, or a certain kind of intimacy. The other situation I can think of where it would be narratively kind of acceptable to do this is if, if like shitty were in the shower or I mean, Jack might not do this to Shitty, but Shitty would probably do this to Jack. And like Shitty wanted something, he was like, Jack, give me the whatever. And Jack's like, Shitty, get out, right? Like these are, I don't know why Jack's voice came out very high pitched there, but I do think Jack has a high voice. Voice cannons another time, but it could be played off as a joke or it can be played as kind of like a romantic joke. If it's played any other situation, I think narratively we would find it unacceptable. I don't know, I think the framing is important. Well, I think what all of this sort of like creepy codifying around this particular action and the boundary crossing that happens like that i think is okay to a certain extent because we already sort of know that jack is harmless i mean here's the thing do we know that i mean if you look at just the evidence based on the comic itself i think it's kind of iffy but he's obviously supposed to be harmless. So I don't think anybody actually sees this and would take seriously the idea that Jack is going to do anything harmful to Biddy. And I don't think that Biddy believes that Jack is going to do anything harmful to Biddy. I don't think so either. I don't think we're ever supposed to think that he is. That's why That's why the punchline works, right? That's why the creepy buildup and then the resolution of tension works. But it's also like... What's interesting about this is that it continues a through line that was sort of abandoned two-thirds of the way through year one, where Jack and Biddy have tension because they're fundamentally 
two different people and their goals and their priorities and their worldviews are out of whack and their personalities are out of whack as well. Biddy is effusive, but also reluctant. And Jack has a high degree of stick to and he's intense. And there's tension between them that has kind of dissipated. I think it effectively dissipated after Line Mates. It's pretty much not too far into the last semester of the comic that we've seen that pretty much go by the wayside. And here it's brought back a little bit. But then again, it never comes back. I will slightly disagree not with the fact that their tension doesn't come back because I think that this particular tension between their worldviews clashing doesn't really come back. But I think this pattern that we discussed in year one and will continue to discuss of Jack stepping over a boundary that Biddy has set does continue. I think that that continues. I absolutely agree with that, or at least I think it's possible to read it that way. And I, of course, have. But following this, Biddy doesn't match him or respond. He effectively backs down. He basically goes along with what Jack says. And that's sort of, I mean, it's, it's also the things that they're arguing about are subtly different than what the conflict is here, which is that Biddy's being rude and disruptive. And so Jack is in the right to feel wronged. And yet his response doesn't meet the wrong appropriately. And that causes Biddy to feel wronged. And then they just like end the strip by sniping at each other. And it's, I think it's supposed to be read as cute. It's not cute, but okay. Well, it's not, but that's the tone. I think that's what we're supposed to take from it, right? I think it's supposed to point to that genre of rom-com where the two main characters start off, you know, a high-powered bitch who can't relax and her stoner neighbor who, like, is going to get her to go to the pool one time or something. I don't know. The go to the pool one time? I don't know. I don't know. You know, you know how stoners are always going to the pool. I don't know. I was like, what do I want to do right now? I want to go to a pool and I can't. So this high-powered fashion tech consultant is going to get to go to the pool in this imaginary rom-com I'm creating. Oh yeah, listen, suck me. I'd, I'd sell something valuable to go to a pool right now. But like, oh dear. You get what I'm saying, right? There, It's the opposites attract rom-com trope is what's happening yes. at this moment. But then, like I said, that basically is dropped. Like, that doesn't follow through really at all. It's Biddy and Jack are effectively in sync for the vast majority of the rest of the comic. So they don't seem to be struggling toward figuring out how to live with each other and they grow closer in the process. It's just as if after this particular strip, a switch is flipped and they go from having tension to, oh, they're friends now. Is it weird that according to the last panel, Jack doesn't actually leave the bathroom? Yeah. After he's like Biddle and he says, stop singing, he doesn't then leave the bathroom. He like stands there and argues with Biddy about the fact that he was singing. Yes, it's extremely weird. Who would do that? I think the check please answer would be somebody who's a little too into being in a bathroom with Biddy while he's naked. But 
Well, obviously, I think that's the undertone is that Jack likes Biddy or has some kind of connection to him, doesn't know it yet. In the blog, one of the notes says, It's the first comic of Biddy's sophomore year. He's all moved into the house. He's built in Queen Bay. He's being adorable and fabulous. Which is, is that what he's being? Okay. He's splashing Jack with shower water as Jack stands, bedheaded and so, so confused as to why his sleep-disturbed rage is twinged with, what is that? A fondness for this Georgia boy and his gay-ass haircut? What? So on and so forth. So the little authorial peek we get into Jack's perspective in this basically adopting a free indirect discourse in this blog post is that we see Jack be overwhelmed by the fact that he likes Biddy, at least platonically, if not more than platonically, and just is overwhelmed by Biddy's like shower beauty, I guess, and so can't leave the bathroom because he can't stop, you know, staring at Biddy's lack of foreskin while they argue about Jack being in the bathroom and Biddy singing. So this is very romantic. It's couched because we know this is a romance comic, it's couched as romantic. The thing is that I actually still think it's creepy. Even if you have a crush on somebody and they have a crush back on you, it's still kind of creepy to open the shower on them without their like explicit or implicit consent. Because listen, the shower is a private time. You might not want someone to come into the shower with you. So anyway, that's my thought about that. Yeah, I mean, as we saw in that hockey shit butts comic, this bathroom is directly connected to Jack's bedroom. The bathroom is maybe 10 feet from where Jack is sleeping. So all he has to do is bang on the door. He doesn't even have to walk in. He can just bang on the door and say, keep it down in there. Get back in bed. That's what and people would do. Yeah, I mean, that's probably what I would do, frankly. The other thing that's worth pointing out is that this is not Biddy's bathroom. He is using this bathroom. We saw that diagram of the house. This is Jack and Shitty's bathroom. Biddy's bathroom is on the other side of the hallway. I guess that's also romantic? I mean, who knows? He doesn't like sharing a bathroom with Ransom and Holster. They have better water pressure. The other bathroom is dirty right now. Who cares? Doesn't matter. Just interesting, you know, whatever. I guess it's it's representative of this distinction between Jack being, you know, either he's completely disinterested and he doesn't give a shit, or he's way too intense, 110%, as the paratexts keep stressing. So it's not enough for him to just be like, ugh, shut up. He has to, like, march in there, yell about it. He's invested now because it annoyed him. So he can't just moderate his response. It's either he's going to ignore it or he's going to do the most. To be clear, by the way, even though I think this is an inappropriate response, I also think this is an interesting character choice. I don't actually think it's inherently romantic, but I do think that it shows something interesting about both Jack and Biddy and the fact that Jack doesn't leave and Biddy appears to not be upset enough about him not leaving to, I don't know, like throw a shampoo bottle into his face or whatever, like at least not saying that you would have to do that. Like if you say get out, someone should leave obviously, but but in this particular case, it seems like Biddy at least somewhat kind of enjoys performing indignance or enjoys performing sort of like, oh you. So 
I think that as far as interactions go, it's actually a really great characterization moment, especially when you consider that Jack doesn't leave, which is, again, weird. And then we see the other three boys in the house. Well, boys, men, whatever they are, young, young men, just be completely disinterested and decide to eat pie instead of dealing with it. And I think that's a great characterization note, too. It kind of shows that Jack and Biddy are in this, you know, wavelength in a particular way that the other members of the house just, like, are not in, and that's effective. But is it romantic? I don't know. Not really to me. I mean, it's like, I don't know what they would do. Like, all three of them go upstairs, and they're like, hey, guys, not cool. Like, it's just not the kind of behavior that I would expect these types of people to model. I will, I think what they would do is shout up the stairs, hey, shut up. Yeah, I mean, that seems about right. But, but it's also like, it's got nothing to do with them. Who cares? It only cares if it bothers them, I guess. Yeah, it's not really their responsibility to uh, handle this situation either. Like, if they think one or the other of them is being wronged, like, it's not necessarily like Jack and Biddy are both adults legally. So, you know, it's not these other guys' like responsibilities to necessarily like help them iron it out. No, it's not. Only in the sense that if you're annoyed that two of your roommates won't stop fighting in the bathroom, you know, you might eventually be like, hey, chill. But I just think it's like a, it's a worthwhile character note about how these five people interact. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that's interesting. And I think one thing that I took away from doing this episode about this, this strip is that I'd never really considered how the dib system within the house takes decision-making power away from the other residents about who they want to live with. Yeah, that could be a really interesting fic. So, I mean, obviously it's like, as we see it presented within the comic, everybody who, well, I guess, except for like, funny ha-ha tension between Dex and Nursey, can't wait to get there. Other than that, everybody who lives in this house is already like really good friends and they're all pals and everybody gets along and that's fine. But it's interesting that who's supposed to live in this house after you move out is not based on the other people who are going to have to live in the house with whoever you pick, but your relationship with somebody personally. It's seen as like a gesture from you the departing resident to whoever you want to give your dibs to right somebody you're not going to have to live with yeah yeah i had never thought about that before really either and i mean it's not presented as an issue in this comic really at all so why would you think about it but yeah i mean i I think it is interesting just to sort of tease out the fact that yeah i mean johnson made this decision because in his metatextual wisdom he foresaw that it would be important for biddy to live here but if i were in a roommate situation where me and the other three guys who were going to continue living in the house had a vacancy to fill i would want the four of us to figure out who we were going to live with not the guy who was moving out yeah definitely i mean i guess from another perspective it's like well if you're the person who's giving up you know your room then it's your responsibility to find a person to take the place but if that were done without my input as another resident i'd probably be pretty annoyed uh well what else do we have to say about moved in in the blog post at the very top uh ngozi uh 
tells people to check out Swasom Santa, which is a fan exchange held this year. And there were 70 signups, so it's a sign that the fandom is really going. And it's also a sign that Ngozi was actively marketing and supporting people entering the fandom in an obviously genius marketing move, but in a way that definitely would have blurred boundaries between creator and fandom in ways that I think we will see begin to ripple throughout the rest of the comic. That Samwork exchange, I think, is still going on. I think it is, yeah. I've never written for it, though. I have. The year I wrote for it, there were apparently 120 signups. Um, I just looked up. It's, it doesn't run anymore. It stopped running after last year. There's not anyone who's running it this year. Oh, really? So you mean for... For 2020. 2020. Does that mean that somebody needs to pick it up if they want it to happen or like it's been retired? They said if someone else would like to organize an end of year fanworks exchange for the fandom, please do. Well, if somebody listening wants to run Swassum Santa 2020... The time is ripe. Yeah, guys, get into it. I think that's all I had to say. I just thought that that little acknowledgement slash advertisement for the fandom was interesting because it is, as I said, an unusual blurred boundary. Okay. Year two. Here we are. Next time we're going to be looking at comic 2.2 square one. There's, there's a really preachy blog post where it's framed around somebody being like, hey, this update made me feel sad. And, and Gozi being like, well, sometimes in check, please, things are going to have to be a little sad. But don't worry, Biddy's story will be a happy one. But there will be some tears along the way. I think that'll probably be interesting for us to look at, talk about. Square one, 2.2. We'll be here looking forward to it. I've been Secret, and you can find me at Camillier, C-A-M-I-L-L-I-A-R on Tumblr.com or S-K-R-T-O-M-G at Tumblr.com or I'm Familiar on AO3. And I'm Tomato, and you can find me at tomatorights.tumblr.com or on AO3 at tomato underscore greens and uh, probably other places, but I haven't been on there in many years, so you shouldn't go looking. And you can find our podcast on checkdisplease.tumblr.com, on Podbean, on Spotify, and, uh, you know, eventually some other places. That's it. Yeah, great. We'll, uh, we'll be back here and... I guess we'll just have more to say. And I'm going to go on Tumblr right now and post a comparison of those two psycho shower scenes. Oh, very good. I'm going to reblog that. And every time I'm like, I'm going to post something to my blog, people are going to think it's great. Nobody notices. Nobody cares. Hey, at least one or two people really notice and care. Yes, that's (laughs) right. Both both tomato rights and tomato hyphen greens sometimes (laughs) notice. You should check out something familiar put on uh, this Tumblr a little while ago about who would be who after the revolution. And I think you should all check it out. Okay. The end. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.